All right, we're going to jump in. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. It is so good to be back in person with you. Uh, it's so good to be out of our house this morning. For the past two and a half weeks, almost three weeks, our family had the full 2020, 2020 part two. I'm not calling it 2021 yet. I'm calling it part two of 2020. Um, quarantine experience. We got that full experience. On January 29th, Carrie went and received the first vaccine shot. And that evening we had dinner with my parents and my sister and her family. And Carrie felt a little bit off. And everybody said, that's the shot. We had that with our first round. And so she waited. And then... Monday she got tested, and it wasn't the shot. It was, it was that thing that we all talk about. So the weekend, uh, we got through it. She got tested, came back positive. That started our journey. Five days later, um, uh, Presley tested positive. We're, and I don't, if you're supposed to keep this secret, I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. Um, it's too late now. Uh, I don't know what the rules are. They seem to keep changing. Um, and so we were quarantined. Now, I'm just curious if you're comfortable sharing. It's cool if not. At this point, how many of you have actually been quarantined officially for some period? Like, listen, not you just don't like people, so you stayed home for 14 days. That's not what quarantine is. Um, okay, so some of you, and, and, and how many of you have been quarantined multiple times, right? This is like the wedding, the new wedding party dance, right? Who's been married, the, who's been quarantined the most? Um, so it's crazy. We spent about two and a half weeks, and, I, and I'll tell you, it was this surreal experience. Like most of the stuff that happens in our culture right now, I felt like quarantine kind of picked at the threads of my life like a frayed sweater and started unraveling some things about myself. I started to realize what I give my time to. Like the things I missed were really revealing about how I choose to spend my time. I started to realize how hard it was to just be still, right? To hit the pause button of my life and truly, truly slow down. I started to realize how much stock I put in what I do and so sitting at home and unable to go and do the things at work made me feel super devalued. It was crazy. But there was also this sense of meaning that started to come back. Like I had a ton of space to just kind of barricade myself in the office in the mornings and read scripture and journal and pray and process. And it was so good and so rich. And so today I want to share a couple things I heard God saying to my heart in quarantine. And I had this amazing schedule for our teachings leading up to Easter. It was the greatest teaching schedule that New Community's ever experienced. And it got all screwed up, right? So we were almost great. That's, that's what I keep saying. But, but I, I want to tell you where we're headed. To, for this week and next, we're going to do just a simple reflection. And I, and I want you to hear these as lessons from a quarantine. You can take it for what it's worth. It's me opening my journal and saying, here's what God has been showing me. And then we're going to jump into a series on Psalm 23. We're going to spend four weeks on six verses of Scripture. And that series is going to be called Breathing Room. And I'm simply inviting you to hit the pause button to your life. And lean into what God might say to you about rest, about stillness, about his sovereignty in our lives. And then, listen to this, then it's Easter Sunday. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. And what that means is that we're, we will, when Easter hits, we'll be over a year since COVID hit. Praise God. We all made it. I don't say that lightly. We made it. And then the week after Easter, we're going to do this really, really fun series called A Family Affair. How Cheating Can Help Your Family. I'll tell you more later. So today, <laughs> some folks in the room were like, what did he just say? <laughs> I checked out, but now I'm back. All right, so today and next week, all I want to do is kind of open up my own prayer journal, share a couple of stories that Jesus lived that stood out to me the past two weeks. So let's start in Mark 6. Mark 6 is this 
narrative of Jesus in this busy, crazy season of his life. He's traveled a great deal. He's gone and he's healed this man with a legion of demons. And then he was asked to leave the town. Can you imagine? Someone who's mentally impaired by demonic pressure gets healed. And the whole town is like, can you get out of here? Because you're screwing up our world and our economy. So he's asked to leave after this miracle. The crowds are growing. They're following him. He then heals a dead girl and a sick woman. And he sends his disciples next. He says, now you go and preach in the towns. And then as they're out preaching, his cousin John the Baptist is killed by beheading. So think about this. Jesus' ministry has been growing, thriving, and now he's suffering grief and he's dealing with crowds and he's sending his disciples out and hoping that they're going to step into their calling well. And so the apostles come back, the disciples come back to him, and they're excited to share about what's taken place, the ministry, and, and the crowds are growing. They want more of him. It is a great time in his ministry, and it's one of the most stressful times. Those things can go together in life, can't they? Look at verse 31. Here's what it says. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. We're going to quarantine. Amen? See, friends, there is, there is good exhaustion, and then there is exhaustion exhaustion. You know the difference, Right? Like for me, every time I've run a marathon, that's a good exhaustion. I know some of you are like, I don't get that. That's crazy. But for me, that's a good exhaustion. I finished that. There's a sense of accomplishment. There's a sense of getting through something and going, this is, this is good tiredness. But then there's exhaustion, exhaustion. The third night in a row that you have an infant or a puppy in our case who's not sleeping through the night, and you feel like you're losing your mind because someone just sent you a text and says, I had this great idea. We should go out and do this thing Friday night. And you're like, no, I just want to sleep. Can you take my baby Friday night? That's a great idea. Ministry can have both of those. We, we used to hold this egg drop, and it was good exhaustion when that was over, right? Then there's ministry challenges where it's exhaustion, exhaustion, and you have a meeting with someone who's maybe leaving the church, followed by someone with a brand new ministry idea. How do we do both of those things? That's exhaustion, exhaustion. And I believe Jesus says the same thing in those spaces of our lives that he said to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I, I want you to hear this as we, as we jump into these next two weeks. Quarantine was actually a God idea first. Retreat matters. Sabbath matters. It's a gift. See, don't miss this. We read the creation story, and I want you to understand, God creates humans, and then he says it's, then, it, then it says it's the seventh day, and God rested, right? You know this story. It's, it's God's Sabbath, and he gives it to us as a place of rest. But I want you to understand the difference. God works for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. He creates us on the sixth day, and on the first day for us, he gives us the gift of rest. Do you see the difference? God doesn't say, go exhaust yourselves, just survive till the weekend and then rest. He says, no, rest first so that you can thrive in life. See, this is the first lesson that I want to share with you from quarantine. And it's so honest, so true. The trouble we have, the trouble that we as humans, as Americans, as hardworking, by God, West Virginians, amen. The trouble we have with being still reveals our false identity in what we do. It says something to us about the way we perceive ourselves. In the past two weeks, as I was quarantined, two and a half weeks, you know what I realized? People don't really need me that much. 
Josh did incredible preaching. He did an amazing job, right? I went back to school, and I was like, man, I can't wait to see the piles that I got to dig in. There were no piles. Nobody missed. Somebody literally walked up to me and goes, oh, it's good to see you. Are you back? It's like, oh, thanks, right? See, the trouble we have with being still reveals our false identity in what we do. When we struggle in those ways that I did, what does it say about us? What does it tell us about the false desires of our hearts? I think it tells us we need rest as a regular pattern to our lives, not a day off to catch up. Rest, stillness, quiet, technology-free, journals open, hearts wide, bored intentionally. Parents, do you ever tell your kids, go be bored? No, because you don't know how to be bored anymore. We used to be bored as kids, and we used to imagine and dream and create and create worlds. Why does Jesus introduce this idea of getting away? I think there's two reasons. One, I think it's because of the crowd. See, the crowds always want more. The crowds around our life always want more. There's always more demands, more pressure, more expectations. And Jesus says, I understand that the crowds will pull you too much, so you need to get away. But there's also this sense of we have a lack of self-care. These disciples did not even have a chance to eat. Can I get an amen? Eating's important. Look at verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, here's how I picture this. Jesus with his disciples pushes out from the shore, and they're all like, finally. And they see this crowd starting to run the perimeter of the lake. How annoyed are you? Are you kidding me? They're going to meet us on the other side. Paddle the other way, Jesus. Right? Like, that's what they're thinking. When Jesus landed, verse 34, now this is what, I think is, is fascinating. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he, told, he got ticked off and told them to get away from him. No, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Here's, here's what I would say, and, and you know this to be true. People create chaos, right? Like people in our lives create chaos. The second thing that, that I think I was learning from this story in quarantine was that it's possible to care in spite of the chaos. It's possible to love in the middle of the chaos. People create chaos, and you can still care about them. I love that Jesus is moved with compassion. I love, and I'm guessing here, but I have to think it's true, I love that he's stressed out, and he still shows compassion. It's so hard for us, isn't it? We max out. We have nothing left, but he doesn't. He pours out what he knows his heavenly Father offers, a care for the crowds in spite of the chaos that, this, that they create. This has been such a strange year of ministry for me. This, is, by the way, is my 20th year of ministry. It's the, one of the weirdest that I've ever experienced. And it's not news to you. We've talked about this. But it's been so weird. From the shutdown last March to creating content to put on Facebook and call worship to trying to reopen in person and trying to know all the right protocols and really being at a fraction of our folks to knowing we've lost folks. It, it's been wild and sad and hard and confusing. But you know what's been hardest at times? I, just be honest. Knowing how to care for people well in this season. Like understanding that, that I struggle with this. I get defensive. I get cynical. I find myself going, man, I love our people. I wish they felt comfortable coming back. And then in the same breath, I'm going, well, why will they still go to Walmart? Right? Like I feel these things. I get fearful. And yet I'm called to compassion, not to judgment. 
I'm called to compassion. You're, you're hurt. I didn't reach out more. I'm called to compassion. I, I didn't knew, do enough, but I'm called to compassion. And I see that in Jesus. He does it here. He's, he's struggling with the pressures of the crowd, trying to get away from the crowd, and yet he has compassion on them. I want to show you this word in the Greek. And, and I just this is my favorite scriptural word in the Greek. Here it is. Go ahead and put this up. I don't even know how to pronounce it right. I'm going to butcher it. So just, just make it up. Splanknidzomei. Everybody say that in the best way you can. You got it. Yeah. Here's what this literally means. The word for compassion in the Greek. Some of you are going to be so grossed out, but it's true. You got to get it. It means you're moved with emotion to the core of your bowels. Are you ready for the lesson? You need to start having a bowel movement for the people around you that cause chaos in your life. Yes. I had two and a half weeks to come up with that. The Greeks understood the core of their being not being a heart, but their, their, their essence, their guts. That's what this is about. That he was moved in his guts. Every part of him felt for these people. How could Jesus do that? Because he rested with his father. See, in quarantine, I found myself refilling, listening. I heard Jesus asking me, do you have compassion driving the heart of your ministry? And I had to be honest, not always. Look at verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat because we be hungry. The disciples don't have this compassion. They don't have this force of their guts driving them. They have a different gut instinct. They're tired. They're hungry. They're hangry, right? This is a remote place. There's no pizza joints. There's no sheets. Send them away. Let them take care of themselves. Listen, I want you to get this. This would not have been an irrational decision by Jesus. This would have made logical sense. In most ministries, you have this balance, this tension of resources and abilities. Most churches, us as a church, we exist with this. If we have limited resources, that equals, logically, limited abilities, right? If we have abundant resources, that equals abundant abilities. That's the way our world functions. That's the way ministries function. That's the way most of you function with your bank accounts, at least when you're yelling at your spouse. We have limited resources. That means you have limited abilities to go shop, right? This is the way we think. We can only do so much. So we get calls to meet needs, and it's difficult because we don't have the resources. This is all the disciples are saying here. Send these people away. Let them feed themselves. We're tired. We've tried. There's so many of them, so few of us. We're burnt out. Come on, Jesus. Just send them away and let's get back to it tomorrow after a good night's rest and some food. We're all in. We just need a break. Look at what Jesus says, verse 37. And think about how annoyed you'd be. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Okay, with what? They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, this is where I started getting slapped upside the head in quarantine, just being honest. If I tell you the truth, I think a lot more like the disciples than I do like Jesus. I wear out. I worry about our resources as a church. In COVID season, our church has seen a steep decrease in attendance, giving, involvement, all those things. Naturally, every church across the nation is seeing this. It's been wild, and I live into that motto of the disciples. We don't have enough to do what we feel called to do, God. But look at this statement from Jesus again. You 
Give them something to eat. We don't have enough. Give it anyway. I'm crunched for time. Give it anyway. But there's a pandemic and most of our people are staying home. Give it anyway. We don't have volunteers. Give it anyway. What about our budget? Give it anyway. By the way, these are church worries, but they're also your worries. They're my worries personally. These are personal worries. We all live from this mentality of scarcity. We have limited resources, therefore we have limited abilities. Our resources are scarce. There isn't enough to go around. We need to rest before we keep giving. And Jesus says this, church, don't miss this. Do it anyway. Now this is where the story gets fun. Because a version of Jesus' miraculous feeding of the crowds is actually told six times in the Gospels. Six times. Which means, according to most theologians, it's really solid that this is a factual historical event, and it's really important in the minds of the disciples and in the ministry of Jesus. It would have been well known. So when we study this, it's fun to look at it in the different versions, and that's what I want to do here. I want to pick up the same story at the same moment in John's gospel. Now, John gives us a a bit of a different perspective in chapter 6. John tells us this scene is happening near the Passover festival. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But he also actually names the disciples who are speaking. Jesus tells the disciples to feed the people, and look at what John tells us in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him. It was Philip. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip, like us, functions from scarcity. He sees no answer. He's irate. He's incensed. How could Jesus think you could feed thousands of people? We're in a remote place. There's nothing around here. There's no way. But then John gives us this peek into something else. Look at verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up, and this is the part we got to get. Verse 9, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Now, this is why John's gospel of all the gospels is my favorite. All the other writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they tell this story the same way. Jesus tells them to feed the crowds. The other writers simply have the disciples, in general, speaking. We don't have enough. One of them says we, we, we got, but Andrew says specifically, we only have five loaves, two fish. This little boy that I've been hanging out with, he's got this. Now, I think John wants us to get a couple things here real quick. First, Andrew was there. Andrew was specifically looking around, scanning the place for other options. Andrew was Peter's brother, one of the lesser-known disciples, but Andrew speaks up. In fact, if you check it out, Peter, the rock of the church, who would eventually head the church, would never have followed Jesus if Andrew had not invited him. Andrew was a connector. He was a gatherer. He was an inviter. Second, and this is the best part that John, I think, wants us to know. Andrew was spending time in the midst of the stress with a child. Don't miss this. Andrew's hanging out with a little boy in the middle of the crowds. And he knew this boy enough to say, this little boy has fish and bread. In college, Carrie and I had friends who started a band, and their name was based off this passage, and they called the band Billy's Fish because they were convinced the little boy's name was Billy. So forever, this kid now is Billy to me, right? So Billy has this bread and fish, and Andrew's been in a space where he's maybe tossing a ball with Billy. And they're talking about being hungry, and I wonder if Billy said something like, oh, I have some fish and bread, you want some? And then I wonder if Andrew heard Jesus' conversation with the disciples, and if he looked at Billy, and they both looked at each other and shrugged and said, well, what does it hurt? And then Andrew spoke up. See, I want you to get this. Andrew and Billy weren't walking in miraculous faith here. 
They didn't see any answers either, but they at least saw their limitations with honesty. They didn't hold on to their limits like so many of us do. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Get them away. Let me recharge. Then I'll have enough to give to someone else. Isn't that how we think? Don't we actually think we can feed the thousands or serve the thousands or give to the thousands? If we just have enough time and planning, some rest, some food, then we'll be okay. See, we function as humans from scarcity when it's convenient, but we still believe it's on us to do all the big things. But here's the difference. In this moment, Andrew and Billy don't see themselves as any more equipped when they have enough than when they have too little. At every level of their perception here, they see Jesus as the one who can do what he wants with whatever they have to offer. Look at Andrew's question here again. It's so honest and it's so me. We've got this fish and bread, but here's the question. But how far will it go among so many? God, we have this church. We have a church of 12. We have a church of 20. We have a church of 100 or 500. But how far can it go? God, I've got this paycheck, but how far can it go? God, and I know David Sack has been asking this in regards to our men's ministry. We have a heart to see men live after Christ, but how far can I go in that? We have a dream of seeing our kids in Kidstown follow Jesus, of seeing a movement of teenagers put their faith in Christ. How far can it go? I have a dream of serving God, but I don't know enough about the Bible. How far can it go? I have a dream of making an impact on addiction in our community, but how far can it go? How far will what we have actually go? That's the way our mind works. This is the biggest question that stands in the way of us opening our hands and living faithfully into the adventures that Jesus has for us. And this is the third lesson from quarantine. If I only focus on my limitations, I'll miss God's opportunities. If I zero in, fixate, obsess, idolize on my limitations, I'll miss God's opportunities. The great theologian N.T. Wright, says, so often we ourselves have no idea what to do. But the starting point, listen, the starting point is always bring what's there to the attention of Jesus. You don't know what to do? Cool, bring what you have to the attention of Jesus. You don't have any idea how to get through that situation? You're not supposed to know. Bring it to the attention of Jesus. I know you're like me, and I know you don't know how to do what you feel called to do with limited resources, how to serve when you feel so broken, how to stay optimistic when you feel so defeated, how to give when you have nothing left to give physically, emotionally, or relationally, how to keep committing to a relationship that feels like it's broken and falling apart. Bring it to the attention of Jesus. Jesus tells the disciples they're expected to provide for the people by focusing on the resources that they have available. He says this, listen, they need not go away. And friends, that becomes the hallmark for us as the church. Look at verse 10 of John 7. We'll start to wind down. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down. Now, I love this next phrase. Here's what John says. There was plenty of grass in that place. So check this out. There was not any food but there was plenty of grass. I love what John's writing here. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. Check this. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. 
This is the church budget meeting where they say there's not plenty of money. There's not plenty of volunteers. There's not plenty of food, but we got plenty of grass. Let's do something. Here's the fourth and final lesson for today. God supplies what is needed, and he multiplies what is lacking. When it comes to us as a church, when it comes to you as a follower of Jesus, God will always supply what is needed, and he'll multiply what is lacking. God is sovereign. The very nature of his kingdom is that he supplies what we don't have and he multiplies what we do. But there's, there's a catch here. When we talk about these lessons, the first lesson was this, the great difficulty we have in being still shows how much of our identity is often based in what we do. The second, it's possible to care in spite of the chaos. The third, if we only see our limitations, we'll miss God's opportunities. And then this final lesson, God supplies what's needed and multiplies what's lacking. Here's what all this comes down to. It's one word, and it's not about bowels. Are you ready? Here's the one word. It's the word surrender. Billy could have very easily said, this is my lunch, Andrew. You get away from me. Couldn't he? There's plenty for me. Let's just sneak off to the corner. I'll grab a couple friends and we'll have lunch. We can hang out. Everybody else do their thing. But Billy surrenders. Andrew surrenders. It's all contingent on surrender. See, Jesus uses the hunger of the people to teach his disciples about their own calling as his followers. If you think about this, this story, and, and I want to wrap up with this, the, the story happens around the Passover festival. Do you know the Passover story in, in Israel's story? The Passover goes back to Moses leading the people out of slavery. When the crowds are in the desert, when people are hungry and approaching Moses and grumbling against Mo- Moses, we need food. Why didn't you leave us in slavery? Well, at least we had food there. And now the disciples are in a remote place in their own wilderness, in their own desert, and they're being tested like Israel, do you trust God to provide the food that these people need? And the bread was provided miraculously in both places, and everyone is satisfied. But there's a difference here than there was clear back in Egypt. Here with Jesus, see, back in Exodus, back in Israel, the leaders couldn't provide the food. God had to do it. God had to rain it down. In the Gospels, the disciples bring what they have, and Jesus says, you feed them. Take this and watch me multiply it. See, this is the hope, this is the grace, this is the gospel of Christ, is that it's not just about you getting saved, it's about you being used to pour yourself back out to the world in spite of the chaos. In spite of feeling like you don't have enough, Jesus is enough. The last part of John 6, verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, and I love this part, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Wait, five barley loaves are now filling twelve baskets? This is math, I understand. Right? This is what it's about. Jesus says, you got to understand here. You started with nothing, but you brought me what you had, and I multiplied it in a way that you're walking away more filled and more satisfied than you've ever been. You're walking away with something that you never had before. In Mark 8, later on, the the disciples are asking Jesus. They're confused, as they always are in the Gospels, and they're talking about not having bread, and they're trying to figure this out. And Jesus says this in Mark 8. He says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And watch this. When I broke, everybody say broke. When I broke the 
five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke, everybody say broke, the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? I think he would follow up. It's about you being broken. It's about you pouring yourself out. It's about you giving up control. Jesus says, I can do more with you broken before me than with you independent of me. See, they left the crowds to get food and rest, but they finished with the crowds with food left over because they surrendered. When they emptied themselves, they were filled. When they got out of the way, when they gave up everything they had, Jesus said, I'm going to fill you now. You be the people of bread. You be the people who pours yourself out. By the way, on the night that he goes to the cross, the final communion, the band can come, by the way. On the final night that he was to be betrayed, that he was to suffer, that he was to die. As they're eating, here's what the scripture tells us. While they were eating, Jesus, now watch these words. Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Later in John 6, I just don't even have enough time to tell you all the things that have been rumbling in my head as I was in quarantine journaling about this. Later in John 6, Jesus looks at this huge crowd and he says, listen, if you want to follow me, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood because I'm the bread of life. And John 6, verse 66, I'll never forget because it's 666, right? This crowd looks at Jesus and goes, this is a hard teaching. This is our, and it says, at that point, many of them left him. They couldn't handle what he was saying. Why? Because he was saying, you've got to consume me. Jesus says, you've got to consume me in such a way that your whole life falls apart and you give yourself to the cause of my kingdom. And when you give yourself to the cause of my kingdom, you're going to do what I do with the bread. You're going to take, you're going to give thanks, then you're going to be broken and you're going to be distributed across the world. When we act out communion, which we haven't done for quite some time, right? When we break the bread, we're reenacting the call of Jesus. See, what God did, and if you're not a follower of Christ, maybe this is the message you need to get today. Maybe this is the day this starts to make sense. What God did is he took you out of the world. He took you out of your sinfulness. He invites you to be taken by him. He gives thanks because he created you. He says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he says, I want to break you apart in the most beautiful way possible. And many of us think that's where our salvation ends, that God took us, he gave thanks for us, he broke us down, and then he's gonna get us to heaven. But it's not what he does, because he says, don't end there, because I'm gonna redistribute you to the world. You as the church, go feed these people. You as the church, go empty yourselves. You're in the middle of a pandemic, how foul, what can we do? Give yourself away. The economy's struggling, you don't know how to give financially, what do you, give yourself away. You feel like you don't have enough time, you're stressed, you're married, give yourself away. Take, give thanks, be broken, and give yourself back to the world. This is the invitation of grace. This is the hope of salvation. Let's pray together.